นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนมัสสะเราไม่มีความรู้เราไม่มีความรู้เราไม่มีความรู้เราไม่มีความรู้เราไม่มีความรู้เราไม่มีความรู้เราไม่มีความรู้เราไม่มีความรู้เราไม่มีความรู้เ
I think it's good to regularly come back and reflect on the function of mindfulness, this, this aspect of the mind that is watchful. And one of the images that the Buddha gave was that of a gatekeeper. There's a, there's a wall around the city to protect the city, and then there's a gatekeeper who stands at the gate watching the coming and going, checking out, seeing who comes in and who goes out. This watchfulness. If we establish it in our minds as a faculty, if we establish it and exercise it, well, then we're in the optimum position to be able to take responsibility for ourselves. And if we don't have mindfulness, well then, even if we've got all sorts of other uh, good things going for us, like lots of understanding, lots of information, lots of faith, lots of energy, even lots of uh, concentration, actually, if we don't have mindfulness, well, we can... Uh, we can lose it, we can lose balance, lose perspective. In, in fact, the Buddha at one stage says, there's a saying that says, mindfulness overcomes all things. I, I love this saying. And I thought when we had this uh, puja table here designed and, and built, I thought at one stage of having this engraved in the table in the front there, mindfulness overcomes all things. I decided that actually aesthetically it didn't need any Pali engraving on the front of it, and so it never happened. But, but I still think it's a wonderful thing to reflect on. And that the Buddha says, mindfulness overcomes all things, and the opposite of it needs to be borne in mind that actually heedlessness causes endless trouble. That, that when we don't have mindfulness, we do and say and think and feel things that cause us a lot of difficulty. So just to bear in mind what the Buddha said about it and to take it to heart and then to reflect on it in our daily life. How to apply it. And what happens when we don't exercise it. Uh, yesterday, as probably everybody <laughs> noticed, it was Guy Fawkes Day. You'd be hard pressed to not notice it was Guy Fawkes Day. Boom, bang whiz-whiz going off all around, especially here on the hill. I rang up somebody in London, actually, could hardly have a conversation with all the boom-boom, bang-bang, whiz-whiz that was going on. And uh, But always at this time, around Guy Fawkes Day, there's a conversation, there's a discussion goes around the country about whether we should be celebrating Guy Fawkes because it's, you know, a lot of it's got to do with persecuting Roman Catholics and, and burning this guy at the stake is not a very nice thing to be celebrating, really, and and then there's other people come and say, well, really, it's about other things, you know. And um, and there can be lots of discussion. I, I read some, some articles in the, in the news about it and lots of discussion about whether we should legislate against fireworks or legislate against persecuting Roman Catholics. And, and much the same as, as, as legislating against Muslim girls wearing headscarves. Uh, thankfully, they haven't done it in this country, but... One European country that probably most of you remember the, the argument that went on not so long ago and banned girls from wearing headscarves. And, and there are all these issues that go on in society and trying to deal with them through legislation. I, I would question that really. There are a lot of things. I mean, even, even really tricky issues like fox hunting, which is a hot potato and was legislated against, sort of, earlier this year, and did the legislation really do any good? Was that, was that really the way to deal with these things? 
I know personally when I, I see fox hunting, we've got it, we've got a hunt around here. That they, they go running around and on their horses and well, they used to go running around chasing a poor little fox and behaving in what I think is a you know, really kind of pretty sad and primitive way, really. But to legislate against it, is that the way to deal with these social issues? Um, sometimes I think it's, it's almost like people want to use legislation instead of being mindful. Yeah. That, that mindfulness, is, mindfulness is something that if you don't have it pointed out to you, how powerful it is, you don't know it's there. So I can understand you know, good intentions of wanting to legislate against barbaric behaviour and, and, and so on, but I'm not sure that it really works. Whereas if we, if we exercise mindfulness around these things, social issues, situations, about relationships, how we deal with each other, how we behave with each other, and then mindfulness means that the sensitivity that we have is freed up to feel for what is the right solution. It's like it brings balance to our perspective. The word in Pali, mindfulness, is sati, as most of you will know, and, and regularly the word sati is co-joined with the word sampajanya, which means clear comprehension. So sati, this mindfulness, is a watchfulness, a kind of attention, and Sampajanya gives a perspective. It's a discernment. So that, for instance, like with regards to uh, speech, like there, and at the moment there's legislation that going through that is going to stop people cracking jokes about religious people. And uh, like people like us, if you say some of the jokes that you tell about us, you could get locked up. <laughs> Some of the jokes that I tell, I could probably get wrong. <laughs> and, uh, you know, whether really you legislate about it, I mean, you know, does that really solve it? I mean, really, if, because I think a lot of it comes from a sense of failure. You try to correct something through it, like, so you recognize something's not good. Like, for instance, if you've got a bad speech habit, You want to correct the speech and say, oh, that's really no good. I really shouldn't be saying those sort of things. I've got to stop saying those things. They said, was recently telling me how they had, a, they had a real problem with a particular race of people and they were very embarrassed that they had this real prejudice about a certain race of people. And it was humiliating for them. The person's a very decent person, but he had this, he noticed he had this tendency and his attitude towards this particular race of people kept revealing itself in a unskillful way and, but he found that watching it you know just continually watching this not judging not saying I shouldn't have this attitude and, and then feeling all guilty and moralizing about it or willfully trying merely willfully trying to stop having such an attitude and that doesn't work but watching it just say oh right okay so here's this attitude put this attitude towards this particular race of human beings and I know I don't like having it, but this, this person has accepted it and watched it over a period of time, it just disappeared. It's gone completely. So he didn't repress it, because that's what often happens also. You know, with legislating to stop certain things happening, 
they'll probably start special clubs for telling naughty jokes about religious people or, or something. I mean, legislate against booze. I mean, did that do any good, legislating against booze? It just creates an underground industry. Whereas if we're mindful, for instance, like this example of, of our speech, of, of a bad speech habit, you can watch it. You can, you're mindful in the body. You feel what you feel when you're about to say something. You're mindful of your mouth, of your speech. Of, you're mindful of your intention before you say it. If you're mindful, well then, there's a sense of restraint can kick in. So mindfulness condition supports restraint. And we might like to think that good intention is enough, but it's not. We need more than good intention. We need a really strong ability to watch. It's, it's like the spiritual faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and discernment are like the physical limbs we have, our arms and, and legs. And If we don't exercise these limbs, well then atrophy sets in. And likewise, if these spiritual faculties are not exercised, well, then atrophy sets in. You don't exercise mindfulness, well, you end up with just a very sort of weak mindfulness. You kind of watch things, but then the mind wanders off again. You start fantasizing and thinking about things. So a lot of what we're doing when we're meditating, sitting and watching the breath, or whatever our meditation object is, or staying with the posture of the body, a lot of this is about exercising this faculty. Mm-hmm. And this is why many people find as soon as they start meditating, all sorts of problems are solved automatically. Because the fac- faculty of mindfulness is strengthened. And they say they feel stronger. Just like if we haven't used a leg or an arm for a long while, you feel, you feel somewhat limited. You can't, uh, can't get around so well. So then you start to exercise it and cut your, all your limbs back. You feel good. You can feel strong and confident. Well, likewise with our spiritual faculties. And if we exercise them, we feel confident, feel strong. And then we can, we can even take on some of the difficult dilemmas that we find ourselves in, the difficult situations in society that we come across, or the difficult relationships we have. Somebody came to see me recently and was saying how happy they were about the relationship they had with their mother, because their mother had been to visit. And... Uh, this, this person's wife didn't have such a good time with his mother as he did. <laughs> From what he told me about his mother, I mean, she's, this woman is really impossible. <laughs> really, really impossible. But she, has, she has a bad habit of telling porkies all the time. And, and, I mean, serious porkies. You know, and I presume everybody understands what a porky is, uh, telling lies. And, and, you know, when you've got somebody who's lying at you, you know, and it's your own mother, that's not easy to take. But... This guy's worked with it. He's really worked with it, with mindfulness. Yeah. And he, he came to see the, the expectations he had of his mother, however old she is now, 70 or something. She's not going to change. She doesn't want to change. She likes telling porkies. <laughs> it's how she gets around in the world. Yeah. And of course, she wanted to change. There's no question about it. You know, see somebody who's creating their own suffering, and she's not a very happy woman. And you wanted to change, but... To have unreasonable expectations just doesn't work. Now, if we're, if we're not mindful, well, then you can very easily fall into the appearance of having a good intention. Like, I really want my mother to change. And so you can, you can just attack her head on and say, you should change. And you should. Mm. Somebody else rang me this morning from overseas and they're having a 
having a bit of a problem in their in their monastery and and uh, and the tempting thing when you you know some of the issues that come up is you just want to just want to fix it, especially if you're a you know young energetic male. You know, when you reach my age, you sort of start to slow down and realize, well, you know, some things you just can't fix. You better just put up with it. And, and this guy is a lot younger than I am, and uh, so I, you know, I suggest to well, you know, it's just if you're mindful of the tendency to want to fix it, actually, it ceases to be such a problem, because that wanting to fix it and feeling like you've got to fix it to fix the problem, that sometimes is the suffering. It's not the problem. I mean, life is full of issues. There's always there's endless issues. There's always things that are not how they should be, in theory. Doesn't matter where we are, who we are, what's going on. There's always going to be things that are not how we would like them to be. But it's being caught up in the desire to fix it or to change it or to make it right. Whereas if we're mindful, you can mindfulness, mindfulness and clear comprehension, sati and sampajanya, means that you can you can appreciate the problem. There's a problem. This person's mother is like this, or whatever the situation is. But also, we're, what are we contributing to it? Mindfulness shows us. You know, we can see our mind going on. And then when you're in the company of somebody like that, who triggers, pushes all your buttons at once, and you're just about to let them have it, mindfulness, if mindfulness is established in the body, then you can feel the energy building up. You can feel the heat building. You feel the tension in your stomach. You, know, if you, you feel your breathing changing. Take a deep breath, a big, big, long, slow in breath, and a good, long, slow out breath, and then, oh well, she's just like that. That's the way she is. That's the way the world is. That's the way life is. Now, that doesn't mean to say we're not going to change anything, but it means we're in the optimum position to assess whether we can really change anything. Of course, Buddhists talk about mindfulness, and then we get criticized for saying, oh, you know, that complacent attitude, you won't change anything in the world. Well, if we try to change things with a sense of indignation or passionate being driven, you know, often what we do is we end up causing a division. We build up enemies. So it's very easy to observe. So is it possible to be enthusiastic about something and not be divisive? That's a good question. In my experience is that we can. It depends on if we have a mindful attitude or not to our enthusiasm. Being mindful of enthusiasm doesn't mean to say that we've got a wishy-washy sort of enthusiasm. Sometimes people get the impression that being mindful is just sort of being detached from everything and not being really engaged. And this is, this is not the case. You know, if you practice meditation for a while, you realize that that mindfulness can be there at the same time as, as real clarity, real energy, real enthusiasm. And mindfulness is a sense of perspective, a sense of presence. It's, yes, it's watchful, but it's not once removed watchfulness, it's fully engaged watchfulness. So I guess all we can do, and all I'm trying to do, is to offer some hints and some encouragement for, for appreciating the function of mindfulness and and then to contemplate and see in our daily life how it works, when we have it, when we don't have it. And then to apply it um, in all areas of our life, in our inner work, in our meditation, in our quietude, we're 
the subtleties of the mind start to reveal themselves and, and the insights, the very deep insights can come they bring about real transformation, real change in our character we start to see something for ourselves aha, aha, so that's what it was I thought it was something else altogether aha. and you feel deep in your guts you feel really in your whole body mind and you know something's shifted you've learned something, really learned something and and when we really learn it, really learn it, in the whole body-mind, well then we don't forget it. You know, it's like, as one teacher pointed out, it's like learning to ride a bicycle. You, know, you fall off a few times, and once you learn, you really learn. Something in the body really learns how to find that point of balance where you don't have to have somebody running behind you holding onto the carrier. You know, you, just, you know how to you know, ride a bicycle. And you may not have ridden a bicycle has happened with me, actually. I hadn't ridden a bicycle think, for, for 20 years or 25 years or 30 years or something. And jumped on a bicycle not so long ago, went off riding, perfectly right, didn't fall off once. A, you know, when we really learn something, then we know. And, uh, and mindfulness can be one of the conditions that brings about really learning. If we're not mindful, then we can tend to sort of learn. You know, like when we're meditating, we can start to see things that are really relevant, but if we don't have mindfulness in the body established, well then as soon as we get up and start moving, we lose our centre. Mm. We become somebody else. So, as you all know, the Buddha's teachings on the four foundations of mindfulness, the very first one is mindfulness of the body. The exercises that were encouraged, mindfulness of body posture, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, to bring a sense of presence, to feel the whole body, to scan through the whole body. To do this as a meditation exercise or to do it as a relaxation exercise. I did this for a long time, and just before I went to sleep, I would scan through the whole body, to sweep through the whole body and breathe into the whole body, relax the whole body. And it helps generate a body awareness, which we can then take into our activity. So that when, for instance, it's time to lift something heavy, you don't forget your centre and slip a disc. Mm. Easy, easy to do. And, and in our formal practices, like for instance our bowing, you can bow mindfully or chanting also. Chanting is a great opportunity for body mindfulness. You know. If you're chanting from up in your head, trying to remember the words, well that's what we do in the beginning. Try to remember the words. But once you've remembered the words, well then, then you just then you chant from your belly. Breathe deep and, and chant from down here and stay upright. You can be aware of your body posture, be aware of the breath and, and also be aware of the sound, the other people around you. And one of the exercises, one of the retorters, as monks in the monastery when we're doing the chanting is you should be able to hear yourself, hear the person next to you and hear the leader, all three of you at the same time. And, and it's interesting to exercise mindfulness and to see how you can do this. You can be mindful of your body posture Mindful of your breathing, mindful of the words, and mindful of the sounds of people around you. It can be this, this sense of this application of mindfulness, broad mindfulness, broad awareness. And also, uh, with regards to how we um, balance these, these spiritual faculties that I was talking about, like faith and energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Yeah. Sometimes people get afraid um, that they're going to go out of balance and 
that's, I think, a, a very natural instinct that we have. We can go out of balance. We've seen other people go out of balance with various religious beliefs. I can remember when I was 18 or 19, there were all sorts of gurus and, and rishis and, and maharajis and, and yogis and, and everybody around. And various of my friends were going off and joining all these ashrams and going and getting zapped by this maharaji and having nectar and coming back and like born again religious uh, enthusiasts. <laughs> And it worried me. I thought, oh, I don't want to get caught up in something like that. It's embarrassing. And of course, sure enough, a few months or years later, they're back smoking weed again or doing whatever they were doing before. And it, it hadn't really transformed them. It had altered something, but it hadn't transformed them. And so I was really afraid of being caught up in, in these uh, things. But I think that fear is quite helpful. It's quite healthy to have a little bit of such fear. But... If we exercise these five spiritual faculties rightly and balanced and give balanced manner and give emphasis to mindfulness, well then mindfulness is watching over them. And then we don't have to feel afraid. If we can trust in our mindfulness, if we like if you can trust in your ability to stay centered, to stay strong, then you can ski fast. If you really know how to you know, how to maintain your, the right posture. And likewise with spiritual practice, if we if we have developed the spiritual faculties, particularly mindfulness, well then we can allow ourselves to get energetic and enthusiastic and to investigate and to have faith. You know, faith is very powerful, wonderful, confidence, trust, whatever word works for you. Sometimes people are uncomfortable with the word faith because of other connotations, but certainly sadha is a spiritual faculty that the, the Buddha encouraged and... and uh, it's very powerful and a great resource in spiritual practice, but if we've maybe been a little hurt in the past by a blind, uninformed, naive faith, or we've seen it in others, and we get afraid of it and we don't want to engage it, well, that might mean we're missing out on something very powerful. However, if we're mindful, well, then we can engage it, we can embrace it, we can give ourselves into it, we can be energized by it, enthused by it. Personally, for many years, even when I was a monk, I, I didn't like to call myself a Buddhist. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, really, but certainly before I was a monk also, I didn't like to call myself a Buddhist because I was afraid of being caught up in the form of Buddhism. Yeah, and I'd, I'd seen other forms of religion and experienced them myself and, and some of the um, divisiveness and, and unhappiness that uh, being caught up in forms caused. And I, so I didn't want to get caught up in it. So, But what I did was I projected too much value onto the forms, as if the form was a problem. It wasn't the form that was a problem, it was the relationship to the form. It was a lack of mindfulness in relationship to the form that was a problem. You know, talking about form, I know I met this guy some years ago who was a Tai Chi expert. I mean, was, this guy was an well, expert, he was a teacher. He'd been doing it for years and years and years. And this guy was so charged up with chi, you could hardly go near him. <laughs> and, but he was, he was really in a mess, this poor fellow. He came to see me and uh, talk about his practice. And, and he had tremendous energy, but somewhere in there he was taking it personally. There wasn't a mindful relationship to the form or a mindfulness, mindful relationship to the energy. And so he was seriously out of balance and he was a very unhappy, very troubled fellow. Mm-hmm. 
So the form is there so as to quicken the spirit, but even the spirit we don't attach to. This is this is obviously relevant to all of us. Consider ourselves Buddhists, and if you're not careful, you can get a little bit kind of evangelical about Buddhism and start you know, go around wanting to preach and convert people to Buddhism. Well, that's a lack of mindfulness. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's, it's not very beautiful or not very skillful, but it's not grossly immoral. It's just an initial relationship. But the thing is, if there's mindfulness, then when we find ourselves going out of balance, then mindfulness tells us, "Aha, that's out of balance." And then you come to the other side. If there's no mindfulness where you can tend to either go further and further out of balance until you get so hurt that then you swing absolutely to the opposite or you just drop the whole thing altogether. It's another reaction. But if there's mindfulness, well then can there can be a subtle, gradual change of feeling relationship to what it is that we're involved with. So mindfulness is all important. When I was home in New Zealand earlier this year, I was walking down the street and uh, this big bus coming towards me and started flashing its lights at me. It was in the broad daylight. Well, this is weird. And then I looked and I saw, well, I guess it was a Sri Lankan. looked like an Indian or Sri Lankan gentleman driving the bus. He was just saying hello. But then as he got near me, he took his hands off the wheel and paid Anjali. I thought, well, I, I, you know, I appreciate his face, but I'm not sure all the passengers you know, share the same <laughs> appreciation. And, and I'm not sure that's really mindful relationship to faith. And, uh, and it's, actually, it was quite upsetting. It was the same day, walking down Queen Street in Auckland, and, and there was a Kiwi guy pushing a pram with his little kid in the pram, pushing along, and then he saw him and he took his hands off the pram and paid Anjali as well. I thought, well, that's pretty good, but you know, what about the kid in the pram? <laughs> faith is okay, but... You know, faith is very good, but you've got to know time and place. So, so the time and place, we get to know the time and place, which is an aspect of wisdom. Wisdom knows time and place. You know, wisdom is there if it's balanced, if mindfulness is balanced. Sorry, if faith is balanced. If we don't have faith with mindfulness, well then it can go out of balance. And likewise, people can you know, end up rejecting forms, thinking there's something wrong with them, as I did for years. But I didn't want to be a Buddhist because you know, I'm going to become a Buddhist and then I won't get on with Christians or Hindus or Muslims or whatever. Well, I'm a Buddhist now. I'm an absolute diet-in-the-wall, conventional, traditional, orthodox Buddhist monk. But I, you know, it doesn't mean to say I can't get on with other religions or other people. So the essence is the mindfulness. We can see our intention. We can feel in our body where we're coming from. We can, and when we have this kind of perspective, well, then we can we can contemplate it. Even unwholesome tendencies that we have can be tolerated. So a lot of people have to go and do a lot of therapy for a long time because they have a, um, a basic resistance to the conditioning that they're struggling with. And probably most of us grew up with some sort of conditioning that we didn't like having, and. Well, what do you do with it if you've got it? I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. You can fight it and pay a lot of money to a lot of therapists to try and help you sort it out. Or with mindfulness, with balanced mindfulness in the body, in the mind, in the heart, feeling sensitive awareness, receptivity, we can observe that, oh, that's conditioning. Conditioned to think that way, conditioned to feel that way. It's just like that. And then we don't have to feel, we don't even have to feel ashamed about it. 
we, if we follow it and get caught up in it and motivated by the desire to cause suffering, we hurt somebody, ourselves or others, well, that is something to feel ashamed about. But if it's just an impulse that comes up, or an ugly thought, wanting to hurt somebody, all right, conditioned thought, conditioned feeling, don't need to follow it. Don't have to get upset about that. I don't like my accent. I've got a New Zealand accent. And here in England, everybody's so, well, not everybody, but a lot of people, most people are so well-spoken, and it sounds so proper, and I've got this kind of country bumpkin accent from Mullinsville. And, you know, for a long time I used to feel very embarrassed about sounding like this country bumpkin. But what do you do? I mean, you get brought up in Mullinsville, this is what you sound like. And, uh, so right, so I still speak something like English. You can understand me, can't you? <laughs> but it's a conditioning. It's a bit of conditioning, and it's not an immoral bit of conditioning, but it is something that I, for a long time, I found dislikable. I, I tried to listen to tapes of myself. Oh, couldn't stand to hear tapes of myself. And this terrible accent. It's just conditioned. You don't have to worry about it. Well, how do you not worry about it? Well, mindfulness. Mindfulness. You. Listen with mindfulness. And, and then disliking comes up. Disliking, so what? It's conditioned. Disliking, it's all conditioned. And we don't have to project onto these forms, onto these conventions, uh, that much value. It's just, it's just like this. Probably most of you heard me tell a story about that uh, Western tourist who, who, who was going around a, a Japanese monastery and um, being shown around all the different the zendos and places you, you know, walk amongst the bamboo and sit by the lake and and, and so on and then, and then the the monk was showing him around took him into the uh, into the big the Buddha hall much to the, the this uh, Western tourist's surprise there was a great big Buddha image in the Buddha hall he thought that if you see the Buddha killing which you read in Zen books. And, and not only was there a big Buddha image in there, but the Zen monk did this full-length prostration down on the floor, right down there, and stood back up again, and then did another one, and then stood and again, did another. Three full-length prostrations, and this Western tourist is standing there absolutely horrified of seeing this behavior. And he says, what are you doing bowing to that thing? Why don't you just spit at it? And the Zen monk says, okay, you spit, I bow. Mm-hmm. You can do what you like. If you want to project onto the Buddha image that much value, it's a problem for you, then you can do it. But you can also mindfully project onto the Buddha image something that's useful for you. And so when we bow down to the Buddha image, it's not that that piece of bronze is is particularly empowered to do anything for us, but as a symbol, we can give it value. It represents something for us. Perfect wisdom, perfect compassion, perfect purity. The human being that lived 2,500 years ago that realized the perfect potential, realized perfectly the potential of his consciousness to be completely free from all forms of conceit and ignorance. And this is a potential that all of us have. So this symbolizes this potential, and so we can recognize that potential and, and project it onto the Buddha, and we can respectfully bow down to it. But, but if, for instance, somehow they legislate against bowing, they might do, you never know what they're going to legislate against next. They might legislate against bowing. Well, we just don't have to bow anymore, it's all right. It'd be a pity, but we don't have to bow. You know, they did legislate 400 years ago. You know, I read this recently. 
somewhere you had to pay 20 pounds if you didn't go to a Protestant church on Sunday. And 20 pounds in those days was the equivalent of a whole year's salary for a school teacher. That was a lot of money. And they legislated. So if they legislated then, goodness knows what they're going to legislate against next. And, but that's all right. Yeah. If we don't habitually or heedlessly project value onto these forms and conventions, well then we can, we can do our practice inwardly. So the cultivation of mindfulness, whether it's, whether it's with regards to our own um, subtle inner work and, and the ability to watch for ourselves and come to learn directly to see for ourselves what's going on and discover how to, how to actually let go. Yeah. Mindfulness is the essence. Or in our relationships, you know, the undue expectations that we put onto ourselves and to one another's. If mindfulness is there, well then we can see, oh, that's unrealistic. Yeah. Or in the social situations that we have to deal with, political situations, the global situation we have to deal with. And mindfulness is of the essence. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Angamayang namavarakata sadhukaranamase <laughs> <laughs>